This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 416th episode, it's our first episode back from SVP. So we have a ton of dinosaur talks hot off the presses to talk about. Yep, and we are currently recording in the dark because we're still on the road and in the dark is how you don't get a random ringing sound from the lights in this room. Yep, that's a that's a pro tip is <laughs> a lot of times dimmers cause ringing on microphones. So even at full blast, it was still ringing, so we turned off the lights. That's how committed we are. We're illuminated by our laptop glows. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right, getting into it. In this episode, we have all that news from SVP. We also have an interview with a best-selling author, New York Times bestseller, also famous for his work as a Jurassic World consultant, and that is Steve Brusati. Yes, known among many things for his book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, and also The Rise and Reign of the Mammals. And of course, we have our dinosaur of the day, which in this episode is Bruhath Chaosaurus. And I also have a fun fact from SVP as well. But before we get into all that, first I want to thank some of our patrons. And this week I'd like to thank Brad Shelby, who recently rejoined a shout out here. So thank you very much for re-upping your pledge. We also have Oscar, Misunderstood Overaptor, Jonah, Robert, Amato Titan, Christine, Wyatt, Kentrosaurus, and Ashley the Acrocanthosaurus. Awesome. Thank you so much for being a fellow dino at all and joining our community. Again, your support is why we can keep doing the show and covering things like SVP. So as always, we will be covering all the amazing things we learned from SVP over a series of episodes because it's way too much to talk about in one episode. Yeah, it took several days to learn all of it. Mm -hmm. And that was what, like three to six, maybe nine hours a day. So, yeah, we can't fit it in. (laughs) Right. Well, one-hour episode. So kicking it off, we've got the technical session about dinosaurs, which is always a great place to be. (laughs) You could say that about any of the dinosaur sessions. You could say that about any of the sessions at SVP. Mm -hmm. So our first talk was by Rauhut, and they were talking about a whole series of dinosaurs from the Kanyadon Calcaro or Calcareo formation in Chubut, Argentina. Today, back then, it was in the Jurassic of Gondwana. And they just have a ton of dinosaurs from this area, as is often the case from Patagonia. Mm-hmm. They've got a few large theropods, 
probably one of them at least is an abelosaurid. They have a partial stegosaur humerus, which is actually really significant because we don't have a whole lot of stegosaurs from down there. They also have some ceratosaurs and a whole bunch of salurosaurs. Ooh. That area also has the pandoravenator holotype, which might turn out to be kind of important because it's like an early branch on the tetanurin clade, which is the stiff tail group. Hmm. They also have some noasaurids like a Laphrosaurus and a whole bunch of sauropods. One of them might be new, but there's also Tendaguria, Wamwaracadia, and maybe something like a giraffe titan. Hmm. And then there's also something that, yeah, that new one might be a titanosaur. So a whole bunch of cool stuff that's going to be coming out of Patagonia in the coming months to years. We'll definitely be keeping a lookout. The next talk we saw was by Victoria Arbor. And it was funny because she said it's basically a talk of what I did on my summer vacation, (laughs) (laughs) which was, you may remember, she moved over to the Victoria Museum, way in like the farthest west you can get in Canada. And there aren't a ton of dinosaurs that we talk about from over there. We're usually talking about Alberta, mostly, Mm -hmm. occasionally Saskatchewan. But yeah, not much from British Columbia usually. But apparently there are quite a few areas in British Columbia that could have fossils. There just aren't a lot of people looking for them. But now we've got Victoria. Exactly. So she's out there digging around for dinosaurs or really hunting on the surface mostly as you do. The area she was mostly talking about is not really precisely dated. I guess the whole region is known to be between 56 and 130 million years ago, Mm. which is very broad. That's like almost 80 million years of time. That could be a lot of dinosaurs in there. Yes. Their best guess is it's from the Maastrichtian and probably maybe the last 2 million years based on the kinds of things that they've found but they want to really find some pollen. That's a really good way to date more precisely because a lot of plants evolve more quickly and pollen tends to fossilize fairly well. So hopefully they'll be able to do that and get a more specific date on it. Mm -hmm. But that formation in one area where it outcrops is where they found Ferrosaurus, which was named back in 2019. And they think it was exploded out of the rock during construction (laughs) because there's a railroad line that was going through there but it's actually been abandoned for quite a while for about 50 years so it's completely covered in plant growth and they went back there but they couldn't find any more there was just too many plants and too much stuff in the way and perhaps too much dirt and you know all those tricky things that get in the way of finding fossils might have been eroded a little bit too yeah if there had been anything on the surface that's true because it gets pretty icy up there and then After that, what they did is they switched to a new location, which is called the Spotsisi Plateau, and they found a quote-unquote weird-looking pebble, or at least one of the people in the area did, and that turned out to be a serrated dinosaur tooth. Nice. The park is only accessible by helicopter, so it's really expensive and difficult to get to it, but the picture of this place was insane. It literally looked like a field as far as the eye could see of boulders like broken into jagged pieces. Hmm. And she's just standing in the middle of this massive area of just like really sharp (laughs) rocks all around her. And then there were some pictures of those rocks and there are just dinosaur bones right on that flat surface where it's broken. So it appears that there are a lot of dinosaurs there. They said basically every time they go there, they find a whole bunch of dinosaurs pretty easily. 
but unfortunately a lot of them aren't in very good shape so they're on those surfaces of rocks that are sort of split open and the way victoria put it was they were probably in really good shape about a thousand years ago when the glaciers left oh, <laughs> but yeah. they've basically been exposed for a really long time and they're very hard so they're pretty hardy and they're still like there. We're a thousand years too late. Yeah, exactly. For some of them, at least. I'm sure inside some of those rocks, you know, once you get past that first little bit of fossil that's sticking out, there might be some better stuff deeper into the rock, but they haven't gotten a chance to find too much yet. What they have to do is saw the rock out of it. They bought a rock saw just for this because it's very hard rock, then put it in their backpacks and then get on the helicopter. Hmm. So you obviously can't take huge chunks with you and then like go back to a lab and carefully prep it out or scan it and see what's in it or anything like that. Sounds like a real adventure. It is. And it is very difficult for weather too, because they said in 2019, when they got there on August 18th, they got snowed in by a blizzard. Oh my goodness. <laughs> which basically put an end to their expedition. Yep, that'll do it. And then in 2020, they couldn't go because of COVID. And then in 2021, they found bones right away, including an ornithischian ischium, which they managed to bring back and quite a few other bones. But again, there was another day where they got snowed in. And I think that, that time it was in July or something. So it's very far north in British Columbia. It's a tricky place with a very narrow window when the area isn't covered in snow and ice that you can actually get some work done. So it's going to take a lot of years to get through all this area. But they do have a little bit of mapping to work with. Apparently, it's been mapped out okay by some oil exploration. But they're obviously not there looking for any sort of dinosaur stuff mm -hmm. so yeah we're not sure exactly yet so far they think what they have their best guess is that they have lots of pretty good looking ribs maybe a hadrosaur tibia a possible scapula coracoid which is like the shoulder blade and maybe some type of skull that's still pretty embedded in the rock so that would be really cool and then she mentioned there's also a ton of turtles because there seems to be turtles everywhere all the time <laughs> yes and not just with the sauropods garrett the most exciting thing, though, is that they might have an ankylosaur rib, Ooh. or at least she said she wants to believe it's an ankylosaur rib. Yeah. But she's an ankylosaur person, so there might be a little motivated reasoning going on there. But that doesn't mean it's not. Yes, that's true. It could be. Then we heard from Avrahami talking about a new species of oridromine from the Mustn't Touch It. <laughs> I like that name. Mustn't Touch It. It is great. So oridromines are mostly in North America. There's about one to three in Korea and Northeast China and then also Mongolia. But they found a bunch of these in the highest mustn't touch it sedimentologically. It's mostly mudstone, probably from a river delta. Just a quick reminder, mustn't touch it's in Utah in the US. Yeah, I should have specified that. <laughs> Got too caught up having fun saying the name. Yeah. So this block that they found, they found one block that includes a juvenile, a neonatal, so even younger, and then about four to five-year-olds, like four to five-year-olds, mm -hmm. maybe two of them or so. But it's hard to tell because it's reconstructed using like the best techniques they can to put them together. But it's hard to know, you know, how many there are when they're all jumbled up together. They're saying it's similar to Arictodromius with one 
sacral vertebrae that's so pneumatic it's basically hollow oh weird so both sides of the vertebrae have openings that reach the middle it literally looks like someone like drilled a hole like through the hole but like a really large hole Mm. (laughs) like you could just reach through it is it's crazy hollow that bone looks and they have seen that sort of thing on a couple of individuals before and yeah so someone asked how you know it's not a pathology because sometimes huge holes grow in bones and they said that they didn't see any signs but it is possible but given how symmetric it is and the fact that it's been in similar other dinosaurs not quite that extreme Mm -hmm. but it looks a lot like an erictodromius in general when you look at all the bones that it might be another similar i mean it's an orodromine and those are closely related to (laughs) erictodromius so it makes sense but it sounds like a really cool fossil it does then we had Susie Maidman, who we just talked to on the podcast not too long ago about stegosaurs. Mm-hmm. This time she was mostly talking about Iguanodon and its closest relatives, but still from the UK. So basically the early Cretaceous in southern England and the Isle of Wight. And essentially what she was saying is that Iguanodon was a little bit of a wastebasket taxon. There mm-hmm. were all sorts of different Iguanodon species. Yep. One of them got renamed Hypsellospinus. There was also Berylium. And then there have been a whole ton of different species. And the interesting thing was she said the genus Iguanodon, quote, spans 40 million years or something stupid like that. (laughs) (laughs) Quote. Yeah, usually we talk about species being, what, 2 million years? Yeah, so this is a genus, which is one level up from a species. But yeah, you don't usually have a genus that lasts that long. I mean, that's practically like from now almost all the way back to when dinosaurs were around. Like we don't have almost yeah any genera really that lasts that long. It's a really long time. So what she did was she reviewed the former iguanodons and they think that about five of them are valid from the lower Wielden, which is a time range of about 12 million years. So even though it says like, you know, just the lower part of a formation, having five very closely related species seems like a lot over 12 million years. Like you were saying, mm-hmm. a lot of them last about 2 million years. So that's pretty reasonable. Pretty good. And it's those 12 million year period. That's about 142 to 130 million years ago. Yeah, Exactly. And they also said that the basic rule of thumb people were doing for a long time was in that area, if they found a small iguanodont, they called it Mantellosaurus. And if they found a large iguanodont, they would call it Iguanodon. (laughs) That's why it was so important when she and the team scan Mantellosaurus. Exactly. And they're working on a monograph of it. Yeah, because then you can see some of the unique characters of it other than just the size. But since there are now like about five taxa from that one, it's obviously a lot more than just Mantellosaurus and Iguanodon. Mm -hmm. So they ended up redefining almost all the material they have from the area as indeterminate because, you know, it's just these small bones that don't have a lot of diagnostic features, except for the holotypes. Those are clearly, you know, have to be diagnostic. Mm -hmm. But they do think there is a new taxon that lived around the same time as Polycanthus, and that's going to get named soon. Yeah, and it was a specimen that was in private collections until the last year or so, and the Isle of Wight Museum got it. Nice, yeah. So the gist is that there's a lot of diversity in the Wilden supergroup. And there's going to be a lot of iguanodonts, or iguanodontids, or iguanodontians. <laughs> I wrote down a quote from her. She said, taxonomy is a hypothesis, which is good to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see it all the time. Things are always changing. 
one person asked how you could tell the differences in specimens and species. And she said it was a good question. It was a valid question. But if we knew that, that would, quote, solve paleontology. <laughs> yeah, because the, yeah, the difference between a genus and a species and a family and all those things are very fuzzy. Mm -hmm. And it basically just boils down to being consistent within the groups because that way we're all sort of playing by the same rules and it's easier to decide on when something should get lumped or split. Yes. The next talk was the first one in the session about sauropods. Which I wrote down a quote here too. Quote, first talk on the best group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least according to Kimmy Chappelle, who was talking about it. She wasn't the only one in the room who thought so. I didn't hear like a round of applause from that comment. We, we were all so busy taking it in. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> Maybe I should say sauropodomorphs because I think this is an earlier one. They were looking at sauropodomorph eggs and embryos from some early dinosaurs. So they talked about Lufungosaurus, Massospondylus, and Musaurus. And they've looked at Massospondylus before. And basically, you know, we've talked about how they developed and maybe they started out as quadrupedal and then became bipedal and all that jazz. Mm -hmm. But they found that they were about 60% through their development in the eggs that they were looking at in this case. So not really that close to hatching if 60%, you know, that's like just a little over halfway through their gestation in these eggs. True. Based on these eggs and other similar finds, they hypothesize that Musaurus is a colonial nester with age-segregated herds, meaning that as they start to hatch, they sort of divide up into their little age groups and then stick together in those groups. And they've previously found that they had softer, more leathery eggshells, which obviously makes it a lot harder to find them in the fossil record. Oh, yeah. But they have a couple of eggs that they showed some details of, and they're pretty disarticulated. They don't know why they're so disarticulated, because usually when something fossilizes in an egg, it's preserved, you know, like it's in its little case yeah it's like finding that you know that rare toy that's never been opened in a box <laughs> it should be in really good shape it shouldn't thinking, be all like broken into pieces just you've got that preserved moment in time yeah exactly the way she was talking about these dinosaur eggs though it, she said it looks like someone shook it around mm -hmm. <laughs> which i guess is possible but like i don't know something weird happened to these eggs because they looked like just a whole bunch of broken pieces all switched around and it's, it makes it really difficult to reconstruct yes but fortunately with ct scanning you can look inside the egg find all the little pieces at least those that have ossified because since they were only 60 percent through their development it wasn't all you know not all the bone is there some of it was still forming mm -hmm. so hopefully they'll be able to piece this together and see if it is in fact a musaurus or one of these other dinosaurs and then maybe even name a new dinosaur depending on what it is and we might learn some new things about these very early still-in-eggs dinosaurs. Yay, sauropods and sauropodomorphs. Yeah, there, there were quite a few sauropod talks. <laughs> so tell me more about sauropods. Well, the next one was by Linnea Jackson about Jolly Roger. That's the nickname of this dinosaur. I don't think she said how that nickname came to be. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> we should have asked that during the, the Q&A oh, section. Yeah. Why is it Jolly Roger? <laughs> so they found Jolly Roger on Mount Kirkpatrick of the Hansen Formation at the bottom of a boulder in Antarctica. Yes, which is the same place as Glacialosaurus. Mm -hmm. 
and some other dinosaurs. It's one of the two spots basically in Antarctica where they find most of them, the other being James Ross Island. Yes. But this is the more remote, like deep into Antarctica, way up a mountain, not an easy place to do excavations spot. Exactly. I always am impressed when I hear about finds from Antarctica. Yeah, it's really cool. So this one, they've got cranial remains, the skull. It's a basal sauropodomorph. Even though it's from the same formation as glacial saurus, glacial saurus, we only have the postcranial remains, the body. For the Jolly Roger, they've got the skull, which is about the size of a hand, so not very big. But it is really nice looking. Yeah. It, they do have bones from the body, too. She's, she made sure to know we, that we knew they exist. And they were used when it came to kind of looking at Jolly Roger to definitively say that it's different from Glacial Saurus. But uh, mostly we were focused on the skull here. Yeah, it is nice, though, because there were the unique things about Glacial Saurus, and we found enough of Jolly Roger to compare it mm-hmm. so we can say they're different animals. Oh, they did do histology. They found Jolly Roger to be at most one to two years old. Makes sense that the skull is the large piece of the maxilla they have is only about the size of a hand. Mm-hmm. It's The skull is a little bit distorted and crushed, but you can still learn a lot. The teeth are unserrated. They have an indent on the backside, which is similar to the teeth of Camarasaurus. Mm-hmm. And Camarasaurus, it's interesting because Camarasaurus came much later and was much more derived. Now, at the time that Jolly Roger was alive, Antarctica was mostly still in contact with South America. So it wasn't nearly as remote or difficult to get to. <laughs> You're right. Probably not even on a mountain back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they also shared a little bit of their analysis and they showed that the population of these sauropodomorphs started in South America, moved to Europe and then to Africa, and then later into Antarctica both for Glacialosaurus and Jolly Roger, but they, even though they both came from South Africa or Southern Africa, I should say, Mm -hmm. they seem to have come from different ancestors. So Hmm. like different, they were in different groups, which means there's probably a a huge number more of sauropods to fill in these pieces. Yes. Before we know the whole story of how these dinosaurs were moving around between Africa and Antarctica. So much movement. Yeah. The next talk was by Tess Gallagher. And it was about the Mother's Day quarry in southern Montana, which mostly has juvenile diplodocus, so more sauropods. It's most likely that they lived in a herd together. They would have been in a harsh climate with dry and wet seasons. And in a dry season, maybe they were looking for a water source and died of dehydration. Then rains came and swept the bodies away, tore them apart, and left them where we see them today. So not the most fun story for a place (laughs) called Mother's Day Quarry. (laughs) It's because they found it on Mother's Day. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the Diplodocus, they had different shapes and patterns in the skin, and one patch had six types of scales, which they said were very textured in life. They had to leave the skin out in the field in 2020 for about a year, and the glue that they used when they were working on it before they left it out in the field, it cracked the skin and made it pretty fragile, unfortunately. But you can still learn a lot from them. So the scales are about three millimeters wide and they're polygonal. 
Some of the scales. That's one of the six types. Oh, yes, yes. They said all the specimens, they, all the scales, they had to view them upside down in a light microscope because there was too much glue and sediment to look at it right side up. <laughs> and they CT scanned one of the scales. The specimens had these black dots on them, which were interesting. And she talked about how big animals, and we've talked about this on the show, they have a hard time staying cool because they've got this proportionally low surface area. So even a three-ton Edmontosaurus would have had trouble staying cool. And then, of course, sauropods are much bigger. So what did they do? Well, they increased their surface area. And one way to do this is with porous media, which apparently greatly increases your surface area. It's commonly used for heat transfer in modern-day appliances. Yeah, so they, she described it as a metal heat sink, basically, which is just a really porous metal. Well, I mean, they don't have to be porous. You can also do it with a whole bunch of skinny fins, like a radiator in a car, mm -hmm. but you can also do it in a more, in an organic system. They tend to be more porous and like sort of spongy looking. Yeah, as an example, she mentioned carbon nanofoam. The pores are tiny, so that actually has a surface area even bigger than Diplodocus. And if you have carbon nanofoam that's the size of a penny, it's going to have a surface area the size of a football field. Yeah. I actually, in back in college, I worked in a lab briefly that was synthesizing these, they call them nanoporous carbons. Mm -hmm. And I think what we would say is like a gram of it had the surface area of like a tennis court. <laughs> it's like, it's just crazy the amount of surface area these things have. Yeah. And it can be really useful for things. And heat transfer is one of them. Although I will say... On that nanoscale, mm -hmm. getting air in and out of it can be tricky. Like mm -hmm. the, the fluid mechanics of that doesn't necessarily work super great, depending on which way the pores are going and how well they connect up in, you know, different ways like that. So it wouldn't be the same as having, you know, just a back that's the size of a football field. Right, right. It's not going to be quite that good, but it's definitely better than just having perfectly smooth skin or just regular scales. Yeah. So yeah, for Diplodocus, the porous scales could potentially increase its surface area, help it with cooling down. And, you know, maybe they wallowed in water or mud because the sponge-like structure, it would absorb the water or mud into the scales. And then throughout the day, that evaporates and cools the body down, kind of like artificial sweat. Yeah. And they also mentioned there could be like a thorny devil that absorbs waters into its skin mm -hmm. and uses it later for drinking. Although they don't think that's the most likely thing that sauropods might be doing with it. So what's cool is they found more Diplodocus skin this past summer. And they'll have more to look at. Yep. And I don't think you mentioned it, but those those black dots, I think, were what they were calling papillae, which are like these little bumps that are known to be potentially on sauropod skin. Yes. The next talk was by Moore, and it was a reevaluation of Mementosaurus. Well, Mementosaurus cynocanadorum. Yeah, we love Mementosaurus with its crazy neck. Oh, yeah. So they re-examined it to kind of flesh out its description. They found it to be no older than 162.4 million years old. And they said the original diagnosis was no longer adequate. But Mementosaurus cynocanadorum does have at least six unique features. And these are details like pneumaticity or holes in various parts like the axis, bifurcation in one of the ribs, things like that. And then, of course, being a Mementosaurus, as Garrett said, we love them because of their long necks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the extremely long vertebrae. 
and quite a few vertebrae, both. Yeah. They were estimating that its neck was about 15 meters long, which is one of the longest necks of any sauropod. Yeah, they said 14.4 meters to 15.1 meters, which is approaching 50 feet long. Yeah. <laughs> I think somebody in our Discord was saying like its neck is longer than like some sauropods yeah. and most dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> How did it possibly hold it up? I it's don't know. It's amazing. I love that crazy neck. <laughs> Me too. They also said that it's likely the longest neck of any sauropod, mm -hmm. but there is a specimen of Diplodocus that has an especially long neck. So that could be a contender as well. So yeah, it's crazy. Yes. Cool. Yeah, it ended up being kind of a sauropod heavy day. It was, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of other dinosaur talks that we will be talking about in the next few days and also in bonus content. Oh, yeah. Well, plus the non-dinosaur bonus content. Yes. So much good stuff. And shortly, we're going to go on to our interview with Steve Brusati. But real quick, we're going to pause for a sponsor break. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And without further ado, we're going to get on to our interview with Steve Brusati. But as always, we got talking about a lot of paleontology 
and it was too much to fit into the episode. But if you want to hear a ton of other connections between mammals and dinosaurs and just how mammals evolved into the amazing creatures that we are today, if I say so myself, then be sure to check out our extended interview that's available to all of our patrons on patreon.com slash inodino. We're here today actually at SVP with Steve Brusati, who is a paleontologist and, of course, the paleontology advisor for Jurassic World, but also the author of The Rise and Fall of Dinosaurs and The Rise and Reign of Mammals, which is what we're here to talk about today. Thanks for chatting with us. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to see you guys again. That it's uh, really a wonderful thing to be back at a Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting. You know, the first one in person. Well, for me, yeah, in four years because our our son was born in 2019, so I couldn't go. And then, oh yeah, all of this pandemic happened. <laughs> a few yeah. years of no in person meeting. So it's great to be here four years later and just seeing seeing old friends and you know meeting a lot of new people, seeing a lot of students and and seeing a lot of my students and my postdocs presenting their research, you know, particularly the research they've been working on during those darkest, you know, times of the pandemic. Uh, So it's been uh, really fun these last few days. Good. I mean, you were very busy yourself during the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, mostly, you know, (laughs) raising an infant and then a toddler and so on. And then it's like, wow, we're doing research, writing a book, advising. (laughs) Yeah, you know, all those things. And it was, I mean, obviously the pandemic's, you know, been been awful in so many ways. But, uh, you know, the, the last uh, couple of years have been busy from a, a work side and, and family side and doing all this stuff, you know, mostly remotely and at home. But, you know, teaching and rearranging research and supervising the students. And then doing, you know, things like writing uh, the mammal book and <laughs> working on Jurassic World and so on while having the little guy running around the house. So it's been, it's been an adventure. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun, I tell you, because, you know, the having opportunities to do things like, you know, write pop science books or, you know, consult on a blockbuster film. These are, these are unusual things. I, you know, I'm very fortunate that, I, that these opportunities have arisen. And I love, I just love doing them. I, I love taking the chances when they come. And uh, I hope through the book and through the film that, um, you know, we've been able to communicate some cool science uh, to a pretty big audience, mostly through the film, of course. Sure. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's hard to beat that audience size. Yes. You know, I don't know how many tens, hundreds of millions, I don't know, people around the world saw the film. And that's the wonderful thing because there's probably no medium of communication that can reach more people around the world than a blockbuster film. So just the (laughs) opportunity to have new dinosaurs in the film, to finally get some feathers on the dinosaurs yeah. in the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World was that franchise. Uh, it wasn't, well, I certainly helped, but it wasn't I, my idea. I think every paleontologist <laughs> for years has been saying, put feathers on the dinosaurs. It's kind of a low-hanging fruit of an idea because <laughs> we all know they had feathers. But no, from the moment I met Colin Trevor, the director, he said, I want a bunch of new dinosaurs. I want to put feathers on some of the dinosaurs this time. I want to do it right. Uh, can you help me do it? And so that's why I knew just instantaneously after meeting Colin um, that he was serious and that it would be a lot of fun to, to work on the film. And, and, uh, and he really delivered him and the artists. You know, of course, you know, these are movie dinosaurs, monster movie uh, characters, but there is a lot of great new science in them. And I think 
people around the world seeing feathers on those dinosaurs. I, I just can't imagine how many millions of people have seen feathers on a dinosaur for the first time. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and then just, you know, and make them think, well, what is that? You know, hopefully it'll lead some people to uh, do a bit of research, go online, uh, learn about new discoveries, maybe maybe even pick up a, a dinosaur book <laughs> to learn more. Yeah. And, and then a mammal book after that. And then that. a mammal book. So yeah, so The Rise and Reign of the Mammals uh, came out in, in the summer of you know of 2022, uh, right around the time of Jurassic World. I have a very savvy editor who <laughs> knows the best time to release books. But it's a pop science book you know, for adults, but I think accessible certainly for teenagers and maybe some younger readers mm-hmm. that tells the story of mammal evolution of 325 million years from the time the mammal lineage split from the reptiles all the way up through the time of dinosaurs, mammals living in the shadows, biding their time, the asteroid, the opportunity, <laughs> mammals flourish and diversify leading up to today, 6,000 species, bats and whales and elephants and rats and yeah. and, and humans and so, so on. So much diversity. It is. And it was a lot of fun writing it because it is a, a follow-up you know, to the rise and fall of the dinosaurs in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it's written in a similar style. But it's very much our story. It's the deep story of us because we are a mammal mm-hmm. and why we act the way they the, the way we act, look the way we look is all because of our mammalness, of, of these things that we've evolved, that we've inherited from our distant mammal ancestors. So I, I, I like to think of the book as just a you know really long-term, uh, deep time history of, of us. Yeah. And that made it fun to write. And I also, of course, learned a, a ton writing it just because I've mostly studied dinosaurs during my career as a scientist. And so writing the dinosaur book was something that I could do really based on a lot of experience in research and doing field work and discovering and describing dinosaurs and studying their evolution. I've done less work on mammals, uh, although I'm doing more and more mm-hmm. as a scientist and my students really are doing great work on mammals. Um, but I needed to learn a lot, which was a lot of fun, just mm-hmm. going through all the literature on, you know, everything from, you know, the origin of mammals way back in the Triassic, these things with tiny little teeth, you know, found in, <laughs> in caves and, you know, Britain, all the way up to, you know, the biggest things that have ever lived, whales and how they evolved. So I, I learned a lot, a lot of fun. And I hope my uh, enthusiasm for learning about these mammals comes across. Uh, oh, definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And you've got a lot of, there's still, just like with the rise and fall of dinosaurs, there's personal stories, there's the the different research, there's all this history, the history of like, you know, the field itself and what we're learning and everything. And there was a lot of dinosaurs too in the yes, book. Yes, of course, you know, because, well, first of all, I'll always love dinosaurs. I'll always find a way to sneak in some dinosaur content, whatever I'm doing. But because the, the dinosaur story and the mammal story are intertwined stories, I think there is a, a a bit of a misconception. You see it sometimes in you know, children's books and television shows, sometimes even in museum exhibits, this idea that the dinosaurs had their day, they were dominant for tens of billions of years, the asteroid came, wiped them out, then mammals evolved to take their place. Now, certainly mammals did replace dinosaurs as you know the preeminent vertebrates on land you know in terms of a group of great diversity ranging in size and diet and behavior you know they did replace the dinosaurs in that sense but they didn't evolve to mm-hmm. do it they they survived mammals survived the asteroid because mammals were already there and in fact mammals and dinosaurs go back to the same 
time and place. They have the same origin story. They go back to the Triassic period, the supercontinent of Pangaea, 230-ish million years ago. They both went off on their own. Dinosaurs were destined for grandeur. You know, some <laughs> of them became the size of Boeing 737 airplanes. And you know, so in and, a way, mammals got there too. Yeah, and so and then and then and then later, of course, mammals did the dinosaurs even better in terms of whales. But you know, but dinosaurs they got really really big and they filled you know the large bodied roles and some smaller bodied roles in, in a lot of ecosystems on land. The mammals uh, went small. They really were, were living in the shadows. They were B-list, C-list characters in a dinosaur <laughs> drama. Um, and, and the dinosaurs kept the mammals small. There wasn't space you know, for mammals to become because the dinosaurs were there. They were the incumbents. And so what that meant was mammals had to be resilient. They had to be adaptable. And living underfoot, underground in this dinosaur world, mammals diversified. Now, they never got bigger than a badger or a house cat during the entire 150 million years or so that mammals lived with dinosaurs, but they became exceptionally adaptable and diverse. And some of them were scurriers, some were diggers, some were climbers, some were swimmers, some were gliders that floated between the trees on wings of skin. It's just that they were small, but they were so good uh, at being small that they did the opposite to the dinosaurs. So dinosaurs kept mammals small <laughs> and mammals kept dinosaurs big. You never saw, you know, a T-Rex the size of a mouse or yeah. a triceratops the size of a rat because mammals were the champions in those underground, underfoot, hidden, shadow, underworld niches. And then the asteroid hit and that just instantaneously, you know, changed the rules of the game. The dinosaurs, except for some birds, didn't survive. A lot of mammals died too, but some mammals survived because they were small, because they could eat a lot of food, different types of food, because they could grow fast, reproduce fast, because they had been fine-tuned, honed to be resilient <laughs> during the time, all that time living underfoot of the dinosaurs. And then now, you know, imagine you're our furry little ancestor, little thing the size of a shrew or a mouse, <laughs> which is true. Real life, we had an ancestor that stared down that asteroid. Otherwise, mm -hmm. we wouldn't be here. And imagine you're that little ancestor. You've survived. You poke your head out of your burrow. The world's on fire, you know, <laughs> but there's no T-Rexes anymore. There's no Triceratopses anymore. That's a world of abundant opportunity. And mammals uh, seize that opportunity. And then for the last 66 million years, mammals have been getting bigger and spreading around the world and diversifying into all sorts of species, 6,000 or so of which live today, including us. Yep. Yeah. Not as many as birds right now, though. So that dinosaurs are still beating us out in You're count. Absolutely <laughs> right. There's, you know, around 14,000 species of birds and 6,000 species of mammals. So in a sense, you know, dinosaurs are still twice as more than twice as good as mammals, you know, if you go by overall diversity. And, and that's important. It, it is a reminder that, um, you know, when we talk about dinosaurs being dominant or whatever, you know, it is a little glib. We're using these informal terms, and, and and in the way of overall, you know, number of species, there are still lots of dinosaurs, but mammals are the champions in terms of just the the sheer range of mm -hmm. of size, from tiny little bats the size of of and shrews, you know, not much bigger than bumblebees, all the way up to blue whales, the biggest things that have ever lived in the history <laughs> of the world, mm -hmm. and just all the environments mammals live in, whether it's ones living on the land and and you know fast runners on the land, burrowers, things that live in the trees, things that fly in terms of bats, things that live in the water and can't even come back onto the land like whales, 
That's something, by the way, dinosaurs never did. There were never any fully aquatic, you know, completely ocean living dinosaurs. There were things like Spinosaurus, you know, that were probably semi-aquatic and lived, you know, kind of at that interface of water and land. But there were no dinosaurs that did the whale thing. So, you know, <laughs> that's just one example of how mammals have not only, you know, taken over from the dinosaurs as those very diverse animals that are the preeminent ones in, in ecosystems around the world, but they've done things that even dinosaurs couldn't do. Yeah. I liked you have these stories about actual paleontologists going out there. And one of them that really stood out to me is Sophia, I might need some help pronouncing her name, Kiwan Jaworowska. Well, I'm not a native Polish speaker, so mm. my pronunciation will probably be off too. But uh, yeah, Sophia Kiwan Jaworowska, one of my heroes. And I talk about her in the book. So I do, uh, the book is a story of mammal evolution, 325 million year narrative, but I uh, intersperse stories of, uh, you know, my own work, the works of my students, my colleagues, my mentors, the people that have inspired me, stories of great discoveries, stories of how we know what we know, the tools we use, the new technologies we use to study fossils. And one of the stories I tell is of, of Zofia, who was a Polish scientist. She trained as an invertebrate paleontologist around the time of World War II. Actually, she was in Poland during the Warsaw Uprising. She put her studies, her undergraduate studies on hold to be a medic during that horrible time, you know, when hundreds of thousands of people in Warsaw were killed as the war was, you know, kind of slowly coming to a close. But that was the era she grew up in. And then, of course, Poland became, you know, a communist country, a satellite of, of the Soviet Union. But she was able in that Cold War time, you know, to make connections to other Soviet countries. And she had this dream of going into the Gobi Desert of Mongolia. She read these stories, these great adventure stories, you know, Roy Chapman Andrews and the first explorers, you know, Western explorers to go into the Gobi um, using this new invention of the automobile to you know, <laughs> traverse the desert and finding all of these dinosaur eggs and nests and skeletons and so on. And, you know, that was just very romantic to Zofia. Uh, but she was an invertebrate paleontologist. She studied like trilobites and stuff. And so... She was persistent and she wanted to do it and she pushed and she pushed and she used the connections between Poland and Mongolia, which was a Soviet satellite at the time as well. And she organized these expeditions. They, there were several of them. They took place over about a decade in the 60s and 70s. And they were the first major uh, female-led expeditions in the history of vertebrate paleontology. Wow. And these were big expeditions. I mean, they would go into the desert for you know months and months on end. And what Zofia became really good at fighting was dinosaurs. She's, I mean, her expedition, the, the, the fighting dinosaurs, the Velociraptor and the Protoceratops found fossilized, locked in mortal combat. That's a Sophia and, you know, Polish Mongolian team discovered, mm -hmm. you know, Velociraptor, other Velociraptor skeletons, some, you know, giant sauropods, lots of dinosaur eggs. But what Sophia really found lots of were mammals, uh, tiny mammals, because of course, this is the time of the dinosaurs. It's the Cretaceous mammals, no bigger than house cats. And because mammals were so small during that time, you know, they're very challenging to find. And Sophia found a way to find them. Mm -hmm. and, and she just developed an eye for this and, and started to discover site after site full of these tiny skulls and jaws and skeletons of mammals that people hadn't noticed before because they hadn't 
given that detailed uh, look and, you know, they were, they were hunting the trophy dinosaurs and the big <laughs> dinosaurs, but she found a way. And, th and then she studied these mammals and she became the world expert in mammals living during the time of dinosaurs. And she described species after species. And uh, I was very fortunate to meet her when I was working in Poland. I worked in Poland when I was a master's student and a PhD student really looking for Triassic aged fossils, uh, mm -hmm. stuff that was, you know, we wanted to study the rise of dinosaurs. How did dinosaurs diversify after the end Permian extinction during mm -hmm. this brave new world of the Triassic? So, you know, we spent a lot of time in Poland. And on one of those trips, I had an opportunity, you know, to go out to Zofia's house on the outskirts of Warsaw and spend an afternoon. And, she, you know, her and her husband were, were just the most generous and warm hosts. They had a whole table full of cakes and sweets <laughs> laid out for us. And, you know, she, regaled us with tales of her time in the Gobi. I was just like this starstruck, you know, student just watching her, you know, and just sitting there in a mouth agape. Um, you know, it's like, you know, I don't know, meeting um, Mick Jagger or Michael Jordan <laughs> or something. It was like that. And yeah. and then, you know, she took us into, into her study and showed us this room full of fossils, box after box of these mammal teeth and jaws and skulls from the Gobi Desert. She had her microscope out. And, you know, she's saying, oh, you know, there, you know, these, these ones are new. These ones still need to be worked on. You know, this, this was in like around 2010. And so, you know, a good kind of 40 years after the last expedition. And she was still working. She was in her 80s. And she passed away a few years later. So I feel just incredibly fortunate to have been able to meet her after idolizing her for so long. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, her legacy lives on, always will. One of the most inspiring paleontologists ever, but also just one of the best, all the fossils <laughs> that she found. It's unbelievable. Yeah. That's awesome. I didn't realize she was the one that found the fighting dinosaurs. That's yep. one of the coolest that dinosaur discoveries ever. Yep, yep. And, you know, and they collected all kinds of stuff. You know, they were they were looking for everything. They wanted to understand the entire ecosystems. And of course, many people still work in the Gobi today. It's a very rich area for fossils. And it was Zofia's work more than anybody that established the Gobi as this continuing place with rich fossils where there, you know there's you know a variety of sites and you keep going there, keep finding new fossils. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. To, and it, for us being dinosaur people, Sometimes we forget, like in those sites, like in the Gobi Desert, there's also a ton of mammals. <laughs> yep. yep. Very easy to forget. Yep, it is. Aww. And I have to remind myself, you know, because I mean, I'm a dinosaur guy too. You know, that's what, I, but what I'm, you know, what got me into paleontology was dinosaurs like most people. And that's what I mostly studied early in my career. And, you know, the, the more that I've studied dinosaurs, you know, the more I've wondered, okay, well, what happened after the dinosaurs departed? You know, mm -hmm. what happened when it was only some birds left? And the T-Rexes and the other giant dinosaurs were gone. And of course, the what happened is mammals took over. So I've become more and more fascinated with that story, our story, the story of our ancestors seizing the crown from the dinosaurs. And so, you know, it, it's what interests me most just kind of from a storytelling standpoint, but also from a research standpoint. So for about a decade now, I've been working in, in New Mexico, one of the best places in the world to find fossils of the very last dinosaurs and then the mammals that took over. And these are very well-dated sites. They're sites that have been worked on by Tom Williamson, my dear friend in New Mexico who also studies dinosaurs. He's the guy who did the uh, Parasaurolophus sound. He's the guy mm -hmm. who excavated Bistati versus the, you know, Tyrannosaur. He's, you know, the kind of really well-known, you know, world expert on pachycephalosaur. So he studies dinosaurs, but he's, what he really does is study the Paleocene mammals that came after the dinosaurs. And yeah, for, you know, 25, 30 years now, he's been going out 
to these field sites a few hours from Albuquerque, where he's the curator at the museum, bringing his students out. A lot of uh, Navajo students, he's brought access to uh, Navajo land, and more recently, me and my students. We're learning a lot about these mammals, and these are important mammals because, again, these are the ones that took over from the dinosaurs. They are the earliest placental mammals. They are our ancestors and closest cousins, and they tell us things like the origin of the type of pregnancies we have, something mm-hmm. I know we've, you know, the three of us have been, you know, thinking a lot about recently with, with, with young kids. Like, it's just, you know, you ask, you know, why do we have babies that are, you know, raised in the womb for nine months? It's because of these mammals surviving the asteroid, finding themselves in a dinosaur-free world, getting bigger. How do they get bigger? They prolong their pregnancy. I mean, so th- these are important mammals. They tell us about the roots of our own story. And that's what I love about them so much. Yeah. Yeah, it's making me excited about mammals. It's hard to do. <laughs> I'm a mammal evangelist. I'll always be a dinosaur evangelist, but but I'm a mammal evangelist now too. It makes sense. We're mammals and yeah, see where things are going. And also studying the past helps us to kind of see where things are going now. Absolutely. And, you know, these extinctions, we want to study them. You know, what, extinctions are are... are these mass extinctions, so episodes where lots of things, you know, are, are stressed <laughs> in a very short amount of time because of some, you know, big chaotic change to the system. What's going on today? You know, climates, environments are changing very quickly. So these mass extinctions and other extinction events in the fossil record, they're very important. They're, they're, they're you know, the Earth has been through pretty much everything before. You know, the Earth has gotten warmer before. It's just mm-hmm. different causes than today. But, you know, we want to look at fossils and see what, how do the animals respond? How do the ecosystems change? What lived, what died? Um, and so there's a lot of ma- about mammal evolution over the last 66 million years since the asteroid that is all in relation to climate, to changing climates. You know, what do mammals do when temperatures spike? What do they do when temperatures get cool and the ice age comes in? So, you know, that is another reason why mammals are so fascinating to study. They are clues from the past that tell us how real animals have changed during real episodes of climate and environmental upheaval. Definitely. And also just because there's been so many types of mammals, it's it's kind of like with dinosaurs. You get such a wide range. Some are very weird, like platypus. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. you uh, bringing it back to dinosaurs, <laughs> one of the mammals you mentioned is didelphodon. Yes, which you said pound for pound more ferocious than T-Rex. <laughs> so Didelphodon was an absolutely terrifying animal. I mean, imagine you know, something like a badger or a wolverine. Not to say it looked like that or it was the same size that, but just like just that general kind of a smallish mammal, but it's powerful, it's nasty, it's gnarly. Yeah, you don't want to run into what? It's the attitude. And so Didelphodon lived at the very end of the Cretaceous. It was there in the same ecosystems as T-Rex and Triceratops uh, and duck-billed dinosaurs and, you know, armored dinosaurs and, and so on. Uh, it would have been there when the asteroid hit. Uh, and it, it was fairly large. It was kind of getting close to cat size. Uh, but it had very uh, sharp teeth and a really powerful bite, really powerful jaw muscles. How do we know? Well, you know, you see the attachment sites for the muscles on the skull, and they're just enormous. And uh, people like uh, Greg Wilson uh, and, and his team, University of Washington, They've built digital models of these skulls. They've put them through biomechanical tests, and it shows these bite forces were off the chart. So pound for pound, these things were nastier, stronger biters than even the T-Rexes that were living Hmm. with them. So, you know, even during the time of dinosaurs, this is just to remind 
everybody and myself that, you know, we, we shouldn't just treat these mammals as, you know, second class citizens. They were not. They were small. That's the only thing. They were small because mm -hmm. the dinosaurs were keeping them small. But they were so diverse in those small niches. They were adapting and changing and developing these novel ways of feeding and moving. And we just don't appreciate it, I think, in part because they're small. And they're never going to be as, as you know, grandiose as a, a T-Rex. Mm -hmm. But also, because they're small, it's just harder to find their fossils. I mean, yeah. we don't mm -hmm. have, you know, complete skeletons of these things. They're fragile. So if we had more of their fossils, I think people would appreciate them. Of course, after the dinosaurs, you know, die at the asteroid, then when mammals get bigger in the Paleocene, you start to find more of their fossils. Mm -hmm. So you can just study them more and appreciate them more. I do feel like the typical mammal fossil from the... Mesozoic is like a partial jaw with the teeth <laughs> sticking out of it. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, half of a, you know, second upper molar or something, you <laughs> yeah. know, and you're having to guess which cusps are these, you know, but it's true. And, but what, what's also, you know, just a remarkable story. And I tell this story in the book too, that when the, the, the first dinosaur was unveiled in kind of a modern Western scientific university context, this mm -hmm. was when William Buckland announced Megalosaurus, mm -hmm. you know, back in in uh, England, you know, in the earlyish 1800s, he these giant bones were found uh, out near Oxford, and they made their way to Buckland, who is this great, you know, dean and theologian and natural scientist at Oxford, crazy guy by the way. I mean, a guy whose life ambition was to eat his way through the animal kingdom. <laughs> he would throw dinner parties where he'd serve, you know, meat from across the British Empire. Uh, he once is said to have eaten the pickled heart of one of the French kings, what? and I thought it was just a rumor, just some dumb, tall tale. But I actually asked a historian who knows stuff. He said, no, like there's, there's real, like verified written evidence from the time that this did happen, that he walked into this museum and asked to eat our, um, he had a pet bear in his house. He dressed the bear in academic robes as one does. <laughs> anyway, but Buckley, you know, the bones, these giant dinosaur bones, they weren't called dinosaurs at the time, but giant reptilian bones found their way to Buckland. He studied them. He announced them. He stood up at this meeting of learned individuals of that time, stood up at this meeting, announced that, yes, it's true. There are these bones of these giant reptilian creatures. I'm going to call it megalosaurus. At the same meeting, he announced that they found some tiny fossils alongside the giant bones. These were little jawbones, just about the size of like the jawbone of a shrew or a, a mouse. Mm -hmm. And they were mammal jawbones because they had molar teeth, you know, with all the complex cusps and valleys, you know, like our teeth. So the day that Buckland announced the first dinosaur, he also announced the first fossils of mammals that lived with dinosaurs. And wow. actually for a while, those mammals, people really debated those things because this was crazy. Mammals go way back in time to an age of giant reptiles. <laughs> but then over time, of course, the dinosaurs stole all the glory and took all the limelight. And the, and the Mesozoic mammals, the Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous mammals could never have as much popularity because the fossils remained like that, just little jaws, little teeth. Maybe if you're lucky, a few parts of the vertebrae or ribs or a part of a leg or something, you know, just incredibly rare. But it was Zofia in Mongolia that started to find the first really rich deposits of lots of skulls and skeletons mm. of mammals that live with dinosaurs. And then later on, about 25 years ago or so, very famously, the, the feathered dinosaurs were discovered in China. You know, the beautiful mm -hmm. feathers locked in because these ecosystems were buried by volcanoes. And but they these volcanoes locked in everything else too. You know, almost Pompeii style. So there's plants and there's fishes and there's insects and there's 
pterosaurs and crocodiles, and there's mammals and lots of mammals, beautiful skeletons, hair preserved, and then lots of them. And it's those Chinese fossils then that showed that there was this great diversity of mammals at small size in the Jurassic and Cretaceous. So it's really only been first with Zofia in the 60s and 70s in the Gobi Desert, then from the 90s onwards with farmers up in northeastern China discovering these mammal fossils with the feathered dinosaurs. It's only been then, there's even been decent <laughs> fossil skeletons and entire skulls to study of mammals that lived during the age of dinosaurs. So this is really new. We're kind of, you know, with those Mesozoic mammals, we're kind of at a stage of research, maybe equivalent to what dinosaurs were like during like the bone wars of, <laughs> of, of, of Martian Cope. So for young people out there listening, you want to be a paleontologist is, you know, you don't have to study dinosaurs. There's a lot more to learn about mammals, a lot more opportunity, a lot more mysteries that need to be solved. Definitely. Yeah. Well, Thank you so much for chatting Thank with us. Again, my pleasure. For listeners, the book is The Rise and Reign of Mammals. And if you want kind of the prequel, can you call it the prequel? The Rise <laughs> yeah. and Fall of Dinosaurs? Yes, it is. <laughs> Certainly as it was the book I wrote first. So in that sense, it's the prequel. <laughs> but, uh, they go together well. Uh, great, you know, gift set for the holidays. Right? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you again so much, Steve. I'm glad that we got to catch up at SVP and talk all about your book. Yeah, those discussions are always fantastic. And I'm glad that there was so much dinosaur material, even in the book that was ostensibly about mammals. <laughs> oh, but the mammal material was also awesome. Yeah. And now we're going to pause for one more quick sponsor break. But when we get back, Sabrina is going to do our dinosaur of the day, which I don't think I can pronounce. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Bruhath Chaosaurus, which was a request by Talon via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. It was a titanosaur sauropod, so we're wrapping up with sauropods, that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now India, in the Kalamedu Formation. It probably looked like other sauropods, with a bulky body, a long neck, and long tail. The holotype was found in 1978, and that included hip bones, partial leg bones, part of the arm, and a tailbone. Now, the fossils from the Kalamandu formation are not well preserved. You've got monsoon season, and with the sands and the clays from the formation that gets saturated with water, and then in the dry season, the fossils may expand in the day and contract at night, and that makes these fossils fragile. Yeah, that does sound like a recipe for disaster. Yes. Now, Bruhathkeosaurus was described by Yadagiri and Ayasami in 1987. However, according to Pal and Ayasami in 2022, so just a little earlier this year, the fossils started, quote, disintegrating in the field jackets and crumbled to dust before reaching the repository of the Geological Survey of India, Hyderabad, end quote. That's a huge bummer. Yes, these fossils, again, they're very, quote, friable in nature. And that's actually, that word friable, I hadn't heard much before, but we heard it a lot at SVP. Mm -hmm. The fossils, again, they're in the soft sandstone. They get water saturated during monsoon season, dry in the summer when it's so hot, and that contributes to the, quote, crumbly nature of the bones. Yeah, and that's basically what friable means, is easily crumbled. Yep, and so that means, yeah, we no longer have the holotype. And in that way, it's similar to Amphocelius, which we 
covered very recently in episode 413. Yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah. Now, the original description had a few line drawings and photographs of the fossils at the dig site, but there are not many descriptions of its unique features. Some researchers thought the fossils were petrified wood (laughs) because of the large size, and some people thought the find was a hoax. Oh, geez. It was originally thought to be a carnosaur theropod, similar to Allosaurus, but then in 1995, Chatterjee reanalyzed the fossils and found Bruhathkeosaurus to be a titanosaur. Then later studies found it to be an indeterminate sauropod or nomum dubium. But again, that 2022 study that just came out, they reviewed the material and they found, yes, the skeleton was real and Bruhathkeosaurus was probably valid. But they couldn't actually review the material. They could only review the The photos and there's drawings, yes. That always makes it so much more difficult. It does. They did talk about an additional photograph that hadn't been published before that shows the tibia bone of Bruhathkeosaurus in a plaster jacket. And that's the same tibia as the one in the other photos that showed it in the field. And that helps to show that, yes, this is real. This was not a hoax find. (laughs) Yeah. If that's all you're trying to prove is it wasn't a hoax, then yeah, that's a little easier than proving that it is a unique dinosaur. They also said Bruhathkeosaurus is probably a sauropod based on the fossils having, quote, exceptionally large dimensions. And that's usually a clue that it's a sauropod if it's enormous. (laughs) Blanford was the first to report large dinosaur bones from this formation in 1862. And then in 1929, Matley described some large bones and suggested they were from a titanosaur. Quote, this is from the 2022 study, although he was not able to extract any bones, even with the greatest care, end quote. Again, they're very fragmentary. And fragile. Yes. Yadagiri and Ayasami found more large bones in 1987, and that's what they used to describe Bruhathkeosaurus. And more sauropod fossils were found in the same area, including a titanosaur egg. There's a lot of marine sediments in the formation, but there are some areas with vertebrate fossils, including dinosaurs. So there is evidence that there were sauropods in the area. That just helps the case with Bruhathkeosaurus. Back to its tibia, the tibia measurements show that it was gracile and similar to other sauropod tibia. The tibia was about 200 centimeters or about 78 inches long, and that's about 29% larger than the tibia of Argentinosaurus, which, as we know, is a very large dinosaur. Yeah, that is big. 78 inches. What is that? That's like approaching seven feet. It's over six feet, right? Yeah, like six and a half feet. Yeah. That's massive. Now, again, there are photos and diagrams of the ilium and tibia, but not of the other fossils found. The ilium was 120 centimeters or about 47 inches long, and that's about 11 centimeters or about four inches smaller than the ilium of Dreadnoughtus, another large dinosaur. That's a good example of how you have to know which family it's in in order to compare it properly. Mm -hmm. Because if you base it on the tibia and you say it's 29% larger than Argentinosaurus, It's like, holy cow, that's enormous. But then if you go based on that ilium and you say, well, it was a little bit smaller than Dreadnoughtus, all of a sudden it doesn't sound so impressive anymore. Yes. (laughs) The proportions of the ilium and tibia, though, they might mean they weren't from the same individual or even the same species. Hmm. That could be a problem. And drawings of the ilium bone also show a feature that's found in theropod dinosaurs, which is probably why there was that confusion earlier. Now, 
based on an illustration in the 2022 paper, which that illustration is based on the tibia bone, Bruhathkeosaurus is estimated to be roughly about 100 feet or 30 meters long. And that's a little bit bigger than a blue whale, which is amazing. We always talk about blue whales being the largest animals ever. I mean, yes. I like to think of largest by weight rather than length. Oh, I see. Because a long, skinny sauropod tail compared to the massive like diameter of a blue whale torso or body <laughs> like aren't really comparable so a blue whale definitely weighed more but yeah there were definitely sauropods that were longer than blue whales mm-hmm. the type species is bruhathkeosaurus matlii the genus name means huge bodied lizard which seems apt and it comes from the sanskrit word bruhathkea which means huge body The species name Matlii is in honor of Charles Alfred Matley, a paleontologist who found many fossils in India. And other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place include abelosaurids, carnosaurs, sauropods, stegosaurs, and troodontids. And our fun fact of the day came from a talk at SVP that I really enjoyed. (laughs) It was by Armita Manafeda, and she was looking, as she usually does, at how dinosaur joints function. There have been all sorts of amazing talks over the years of her. I think they include things like slow motion guinea fowl feet. I'm pretty sure that was her. (laughs) Basically just reconstructing how dinosaurs would have moved. The really interesting thing about this talk is that basically what she said was, my previous talks were all wrong. looking at joints moving in three dimensions is not good enough. You actually need six dimensions in order to correctly describe how dinosaur joints would have moved. Wow. So when you when I say six dimensions, it sounds crazy mm-hmm. because we know that real world space has three dimensions or four if you want to include time. Some people do that. But really what we should call it is degrees of freedom because all the movements are in 3D space. So it's still in three-dimensional space. It's just six different movements you can think of so basically if you're thinking about the joint it's sort of like is the joint moving along the axis that you would expect it to bend is it twisting a little bit from side to side or is it sort of hinging from side to side so it's sort of like twisting bending one way or bending the other way are the three dimensions that we usually talk about when we're talking about joints but in this case they added three more dimensions which they refer to as translations And those, rather than being rotation, you know, side to side, up, down, twisting, they're the bones moving away from the joints. So sort of like being pulled away in different directions. Hmm. And that happens naturally when animals move their joints. They don't stay fixed like permanently. It's not a hinge in your joint. There's cartilage in between it and ligaments and things. And they can pull away a little bit and they can get into different shapes that you wouldn't normally expect. So just by looking at the bones really simply. When they included those extra degrees of freedom into the analysis, they basically ended up with less clarity on it. And the way she put it was, you need to embrace the loss of clarity, (laughs) (laughs) that basically our paradigms weren't as accurate as we thought. But then it was really clever. She tried to quantify why some bone interactions look right or look wrong. And what she found was that it's easier to find out when joints look wrong. And basically what she ended up doing was modeling 
how these bones move. She still didn't have to include tissues like cartilage, which is really useful mm -hmm. because models that require you to guess what the cartilage is like is obviously very fraught right. when you're talking about dinosaurs because it never preserves. Such very high variation there. Exactly. And so you don't really want to rely on that. Instead, they she ended up with a basically statistical model of the most likely positions of where these joints would be. And the models and the results aren't finalized yet but when you put it together we could potentially look at things like how far sauropods could bend their necks from side to side or how much ankylosaurs could move their tails or details about how all these dinosaurs walked and how much their feet would change you know like the individual toe joints and all that kind of stuff mm. so there's lots of possibilities that you can do because you can model any joint you want you don't mm -hmm. have to figure out the cartilage you can just put it into a very complicated model with six degrees of freedom. <laughs> Think of the animations. Yeah, exactly. So she's showed a couple of like very early results of what it might look like, but it's still early phases because I think she recently was working on a new study and was going to put it into the old model and then realized, oh no, that model's not what I want. <laughs> so I just, I thought it was an excellent example of she's been working in this paradigm of three dimensions three different rotations for all this time and then realized no wait i need to rethink this and ended up with a better model which will be a lot more useful in the future and more correct cool and on that note that wraps up this episode of i know dino thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoyed all the svp updates from this year so far and now is a good time if you haven't yet joined our community of fellow dino it alls you can get access to that sweet, sweet bonus content that we keep talking about. That is if you join at patreon.com slash I know Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.